I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. On today's show, I sit down with food writer Ruth Reichel, who's amazing, and we talk about her new book, which is called Save Me the Plums. And the book is all about her years taking over Gourmet Magazine and really doing amazing things in a magazine for about a decade until it shut down. Uh, amazing Conan Ass publication full of amazing history. And Ruth just uh, did such a brave and amazing job there and really uh, hired some people to write there like Jonathan Gold and Francis Lamb and people like that are just amazingly skilled writers. It's a great book. This is a great episode. We taped this episode last week um, at Empire State South, my restaurant in Midtown, Atlanta, and uh, caught up with Ruth on her book tour. Um, but go buy the book. It, it is an amazing read. It's just great. And Ruth is a delightful human and so smart and so amazingly attuned to the world of food uh, that we love so much. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. That will help other people find the show. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe and check out other episodes like Tom Colicchio Heats Up Leftovers and last week's really fun episode with another great food writer, Adam Platt Eats an Amazing Sandwich. All right, so here's this week's conversation. Ruth Reichel is a plum. Hello, world. Uh, this is Hugh Atchison. I'm at uh, Empire State South, and uh, I've been seated uh, next to a delightful human who's had a lot of influence in my life, though she doesn't really know it because I've read most of her books. And uh, she once judged an episode of competitive food television that I was on, and I think I went home. Um, <laughs> but it's Ruth Reichel. And Ruth has got a new book come out, uh, coming out. When does it come out? Ruth? No, it came out. It came out. Uh, I'm two still days looking at ago. a watermark copy. It, but. it came out on April 2nd. And the book is called Save Me the Plums, which is from the most beautiful William Carlos Williams poem that's always been a really interesting poem to me. It's so vivid and amazing, which is, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you, you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. So why did you call it that? For two reasons. One reason being that, um, actually three reasons. One reason being that lots of people know this poem and it's sort of become a meme on Twitter where people paraphrase it all the time. So I figured food people would know what I was referring to. I when think food I mentioned. people definitely know, yes. Um, secondly, because William Carlos Williams was a remarkable man, he was a physician. He worked with poor people. He was, by all accounts, a really great guy. He was also a poet and knew everyone, very close to Ezra Pound. Was he New York-based? He was in New Jersey. Okay. Um, and so to me, and, and he's, he was like a, a founder of the Imagist movement. So to me, he sort of epitomized everything I wanted to do with Gourmet. I mean, he was you know, a really decent, practical man who did good in the world, who was also um, very ahead of his time and an artist. And it was sort of everything that I thought I wanted to do with Gourmet was, you know, this fantastic American man. And thirdly, it was a very plum job. 
it was a really plum job. It was such an amazing magazine. But then I, I read also that you, and it, I can't remember if it was an interview or in the book, that your father, uh, who was a typesetter and, and designer, uh, designed a cover for William Carlos Williams' poetry compendium. For his autobiography. For his autobiography, yeah. okay. My, my father was a pretty well-known book designer. And um, when I ordered the book, I mean, I, I decided I should read his autobiography since I'm using this. And I ordered it, and there it was. My your, dad your had dad's designed work. it. Oh, that's awesome. My dad's an economist and writes books like about the car industry. It's not that exciting. <laughs> but what is he? He calls them like weird, whimsical names. I can't remember which one. But so I, uh, the book is really about your tenure at Gourmet as editor of Gourmet magazine. And up until the point that Gourmet closed its doors and Condé Nast decided to move forward without it as one of the titles. But I found it a really interesting thing that you, it, it, you're kind of writing it from the point of view of an ascendancy into this wealth and power mystique um, and feeling like a bit of an outsider. That you didn't understand the lingo of the, re- of the magazine business. Nothing. And, yeah. It was like they were speaking Martian to me on, my, on day one. What do these words mean? Well, I and I had to look up Yaffe and stuff like that, and you explain it so well in one of the chapters. And this is a, this is short lingo in the gourmet world for the you asked for it recipes, the recipes that people would write in for saying, my mother and I were dining in London at such and such a place and really enjoyed the pistachio whatever, gelato. Could you get the chef to send us the recipe? Um, which... I think one of my favorite moments in this ending in, in the world of Shefton was getting a recipe published in Gourmet in the same thing, which was a you asked for it. But I had no idea about the acronym, so I had to read it through. Um, but I found that you're coming from the L.A. Times and really built up the food program there, which is now still in amazing hands, even after Jonathan Gold's passing. Um, and... And then you're going into this Conan Ast world, which just seems like the most surreal, highfalutin, end days of publishing type of wealth. It really was. You know, I mean, people would take cars to go one block. You know, I mean, there were editors there who had literally never in their lives been on the subway. They had clothing allowances. A lot of the women editors had... Um, hair and makeup people show up at their house every morning to fluff them. Did they all just think they the were day. Anna Wintour? Or? Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, Graydon Carter. And- yeah, I mean, they had designers come and design their offices. And um, the whole Condé Nast culture was you know, if someone retired, we would buy them lavish presents and put it on our expense accounts. <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, here's, here's something that you will appreciate. The cooks at Gourmet, and um, by the time we closed, we had um, 12, eight full-time people and a couple people who shared jobs, so there were 12 people, plus three people whose job was nothing but cleaning up after them, doing the dishes and so forth. Um, but each of those cooks got to take a cooking class once a year anywhere in the world. So if you wanted to go learn... Thai cooking, you would, would fly, fly, off. fly off to you know Chiang Mai and spend a week or ten days with a cook there, and you know, and every year, everyone went off, and 
Cy Newhouse, who was the owner of Condé Nast, believed that it was really important if you were going to be cutting edge and stay ahead of everyone else, you needed to know. To travel and um, be out there and, and learn the food. Which yeah. isn't wrong. No, it's not, but it's extraordinarily expensive to teach people that way. It, it is. And, it, and, and when I got there, everybody just took that for granted. It's funny that they took it for granted in a time in publishing where everything seemed to be going, you know, into the trash, um, financially at least. Um, my mother was a huge um, gourmet reader b- way before your time, uh, I guess pretty much under Gail's time because Gail was there for 30 Yeah, she was not in charge for 30. I mean, the, right. the longest editor was Mrs. Montant. Okay. Who um, required her editors to wear white gloves when they came to work. and I mean, I require that. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my favorite Mrs. Montant story, I mean, and she really was like the editor for something like 30 years, and then Gail succeeded her when she retired. Um, but I, when I got to Gourmet, I mean, of this large staff, 65 people, there were two men. And I called the head of human resources, and I said, "We gotta get some guys in here. Yeah. Why? Why, why aren't there balance? any men who work here?" And um, she said, "Well, you know, about 15 years ago, I sent a man over there, and Mrs. Montant called me up and said, "You know, the girls and I don't like that.'" <laughs> <laughs> the power of Mrs. Montant. So. But my mother's my mother went so far as to buy the uh, the custom boxes that you'd put the year's worth of gourmets in, and they'd all be lined up on the shelves, like sort of held together. I hope you still have those. Uh, they're somewhere, <laughs> um, and it was always. It, but and it was in a time in her life where I think she really latched onto food. Food had always been important in our family, but not to the degree of cooking fine fine food. Right. But suddenly, you know. My lunches were comprised of, you know, al dente cold spaghetti salads with San Marzano tomatoes and capers. God, how lucky are you? <laughs> I know, it was good. <laughs> well, you got to realize that I was mostly raised by my single father, who was an economist and fed me fish sticks. So it's, it was a different world at that time, living with my mother briefly. But gourmet, it was, it was my entry into food. And it was my entry into seeing these lavish places that you could travel to and eat. Well, and it was for, certainly for people of my generation, it absolutely was the entrance to worlds you didn't even dream about. And, I mean, one of the things that I think it's very difficult for younger people to understand is how much the world changed in the mid-60s when air travel suddenly became affordable. I mean... Until then, air travel was really reserved for the very wealthy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people got on these planes dressed to the nines and had big comfortable seats and wasn't like travel now. And so if you wanted to see the world, you couldn't get on a plane and do it if you were an ordinary person. And so gourmet was really a way of of seeing the world world you couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, it, it, but, you know, at the time that you took over for it and, and then uh, subsequently became the editor, it seemed to be in a bit of a staid, uh, a pretty elitist sort of, uh, you know, 
fancified magazine for the elite at that point it, in time. It, I, I certainly felt it was. I felt it was not for me. So what was your mantra that you, what was, what was the real driving force of change that you immediately wanted to see? I wanted, to, I wanted to, frankly, I wanted to see everything change. I, I wanted us to address the changing American food scene. I mean, I, and it wasn't just me. I mean, when I got there, I discovered that the staff very much wanted that too, that um, there was all this pent-up energy to talk about what was going on in the farms, to talk about how um, fishing was changing and, that, and how meat production had changed. And... Um, to when we traveled, not to travel just to resorts and to fancy places, but to actually go and visit real people and eat real food and eat real food and to and to talk about. Yes, we wanted to do the wonderful, beautiful centerfold spreads, which were aspirational and you know gorgeous place settings. But we also wanted to give people real advice for what do you do as a working woman to feed your family um you know let's make uh, let's make recipes that are both for everyday cooking and but that stand out and yes and, yeah. and and you know and most more than anything i felt like i mean gourmet had always considered itself timeless and i thought that i mean i took it over in 99 and it was a time of enormous changes in food and how we thought about chefs and that Timeless didn't do it anymore. It had to be very timely. And I, I guess that's the biggest change is like I didn't want to close any issue until the last minute because I wanted to address things that were people were thinking about right then. Right. And so... You had a no, you had a number of people on staff who turned out to be some of the most gifted writers uh, in the food world ever. You had Jonathan Gold. Well, I brought Jonathan. You yes. brought Jonathan. Well, uh, but that that was the other thing. It seemed to be in in reading the book, it was really an an exercise in really astute team building, and that you hadn't led uh, a, a a business of 60 people before and that you wanted to change the, 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 the system within gourmet and thus you wanted to work with a lot of people you've worked with before, but you're really successful in building that really quickly. Well, I think it was because I knew so little. I mean, I knew I'm, I, I was really aware that I'm not a manager and, um, that I couldn't pretend to know. I mean, the entire staff instantly knew that I didn't really know anything about magazines. That, that the, you were a fish out of water? That, yes. <laughs> and so I think because I really had no illusions um, and I was so eager to make a great magazine and it seemed like such an opportunity that what I had to do was hire people who were much smarter than I was and to just trust them. To, to hire a managing editor who was a great manager. You talked in the book about a couple of people that you had worked under who were really, and I'm blanking out on names, who were really keen on making, uh, uh, that they were leaders who wanted to learn from others. Yeah. And I ju you just said that as well, that you wanted to hire smarter, people who are smarter than you, which has kind of been my mantra in hiring these days within our organization, which is I want to hire people who are better and smarter than me. I've got my own niche little skill set, but I want to be surrounded by people who do different things. Yes. And, you know, I mean, if, if you're 
a writer and you think you know more than your art director, you're about really art you're direction. about yeah. art director. You're really stupid <laughs> you're to really think wrong. that. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when your art director says, "I've got this great idea," you go, "Go do it." And mm. you know, I mean, I I learned pretty quickly that as a leader, my job was basically to get these brilliant people and then run an interference for them and make sure that um, they could do... Their visions yeah. were accepted. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the stories in the book. But one of the most amazing ones that I was reading was the uh, Rocco Despirito fish cover. So tell me about that. So I had a new art director who had just started. And my first question to her is, I really need some ideas for the restaurant issue cover. Because the year before had been the worst selling cover in gourmet history. It was just a complete newsstand disaster. And it was awful. Um, so covers really do sell magazines. Cover well, gourmet actually was mostly subscription, mm-hmm. but you get judged on your newsstand sales, and you get reports one week in, two weeks in, three weeks in, and everybody follows them very carefully because the newsstand people. The idea is that one, they're paying real money for it, right? And two, the, you might be able to convert them to subscribers. So right, so um, they're they, valuable. They really and they they so you're you're judged very much by how successful your news. So having a cover that was the worst one ever was really not good for a new editor. And so Diana LaGuardia, my brilliant new art director, says, you know what, I was thinking maybe we should get a very large fish and have a very handsome chef holding this very large fish. And so we settled on Rocco Despirito, who was a very hot chef at that time and had just lost a lot of weight and was looking really fantastic. And then we had to cast the fish. The fish had to be American, gorgeous, unendangered. I mean, there were all these things that it had to be. So it was not easy. But we finally found this six-foot-long, beautiful tilefish with a very sassy tail, and Diana posed Rocco as if he were dancing with the fish. And it was, it was like both romantic and funny. Um, it, it, you looked at it, and then you looked at it again. And I was really proud of it. And I show it to the editorial director of Condé Nast, and he just he starts backing away from it, going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong? And he said... You can't put a dead fish on the cover. Everybody in magazines knows that. Dead fishes are the kiss of death. And I go, but it's so fantastic. It's so funny. It's so beautiful. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, Diana LaGuardia was a very seasoned art director. Surely she knew that you weren't supposed to put dead fish on the cover. So I felt like she was kind of testing me. You know, let's... Let's see if she's going to back me up when I do something really radical. So James is terrified of it, and I I keep telling him how wonderful I think it is, how funny I think it is, and finally I say to him, look, I will bet you $100 that this sells better than last year. 
And he says, um, last year was horrible. I said, okay, the year before. Pick any issue you want. I'll bet you $100 this, this issue will sell really well. And he thinks about it for a moment, and then he says, okay, you're on. I had to be away when we did, there, there was something called print order where you show the upcoming issue to all the bosses and they sit around a table in judgment. It's kind of like you're at the Last Supper and they're you know, really pontificating on every story, the placement of the ads, and you go through it bit by bit. And it, it's a very daunting process. I mean, there are you know, 15 or 20 of them, the circulation director, the owner, the CEO, all of them. And I had to be away for this. So Lori Ochoa, the executive editor, was had the very unenviable task of introducing Cy Newhouse to the fish. And I said, you know, the minute it's over... This is a man who's terrified of garlic. This is a man so. who's terrified of garlic and, you know, certainly isn't going to like having a fish on his cover. And so I said to her, the minute you come out of that meeting, call me and tell me what happened. And Lori calls and she said, they all hated the fish cover. And I just kept saying over and over again... Ruth loves it, Ruth loves it, Ruth loves it. And so I thought we were home free because nobody says that we had to change it. And she said, and as I was walking out of the office, Cy took me aside and said, come with me. And I said, oh, no. And she said, he took me down to James Truman's office. Truman always looked at the issue ahead of time. He didn't no, come. No, James Truman is... He was the editorial director okay. of Condé Nast. Condé Nast overall. Overall. And he always looked at it ahead before I showed it to the other people. And Laurie said, it was the strangest thing. She said, he threw the cover down on Truman's desk and said, have you thought carefully about this? And she said, and, and Truman said one word, yes. And she said, so I picked up the cover, handed it to me, and gave me a nod. And that was it. You had clearance. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I had no idea that I was putting James on, you know, he, it was on now, it was now, a, it was on his shoulders <laughs> as well as mine. And the day that the first cover numbers came in, I really couldn't sleep that night. I was thinking, oh, you know, you know, I'm going to get fired, and I've done this terrible thing to James. And I get to the office really early, and James had gotten there ahead of me. And on my desk were five $20 bills and a note that said, Cy and I think you should put a fish on your Thanksgiving cover. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever do that? I never did. <laughs> I guess you could do the fish turducken and put the turkey inside a large tile fish or something like that. So you you worked at, uh, when you first met Jonathan Gold, you were reviewing restaurants for the Los Angeles Times. Yes. Correct? Yes. And he was a music he, critic. He was the music critic of the, of the LA Weekly. Right. And I kept running into him in restaurants. You know, I would go to, you know, some Chinese restaurant out in the valley or a little Salvadoran restaurant down on um, Beverly Boulevard or someplace in Koreatown. And I would run into Jonathan, who was sort of pale and had wispy hair and a little plump and always wore a black leather jacket. 
and his gorgeous girlfriend who had long, wild black hair and gorgeous golden skin and legs that seemed to go on forever. And we never talked to each other, but at one point um, in a Korean restaurant, the uh, maitre d' insisted that we share a table because they were very crowded. And we started talking and... And did they did Jonathan know who you were? Jonathan knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, were you anonymous at the LA Times? I was anonymous, but you know the food community in those days. I mean, we're talking about small. 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, we everybody who cared about food pretty much knew each other, and it wasn't so much about being anonymous. I mean, even with chefs, we we all felt like we were in it together. That all of us just wanted American food to be better. And better appreciated. So there wasn't that sense of competitiveness, competitiveness or, with, with chefs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in L.A., too, what people really cared about was where the celebrities went. They didn't care so much where the restaurant critics went. It wasn't like you were all-powerful. Right. Uh, so, I, you know, I quietly got to know Jonathan, and it, it occurred to me that he was incredibly smart, remarkably knowledgeable and he once told me that he had eaten in every taco stand on Pico Boulevard which I totally did not believe because there are hundreds of them. <laughs> then you looked at the rotundness of Jonathan and you were like <laughs> maybe it is possible. And it was it, it turned out to be true and at a certain point at, at that point I was both I was the restaurant editor of the Los Angeles Times which meant that I was running the I was editing Restaurant critics for the San Diego edition, the the San the Valley edition, the Orange County edition, and we did reviews on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. We were doing a lot. There were a lot of critics, and I was editing them all. And at a certain point, it was just too much work. Yeah. And they allowed me to hire an assistant. And Jonathan said, "You should hire Lori." And Lori was very quiet. Um, and I said, "Really?" And he said, she's the best editor I've ever met. Yeah. And that turned out to be true. She is an extraordinary editor. And Where is Laurie at now? She is the entertainment editor of the Los Angeles Times. Okay. That's great. Um, all in the family. All in the family. And uh, so when I... And so, and, and we, at a certain point, the old editor of the food section at the Los Angeles Times retired. And... Um, we got to take it over, and which was an amazing moment, I think. I'm very proud of that section we did. Um, Jonathan came and wrote Counterintelligence for the LA mm-hmm. Times, and Tony Tipton Martin was there, and at the time... I didn't realize that. At the time, she was writing nutrition stuff, and mm-hmm. I said to her, you know, this stuff is so boring. Go out and do some, you know... Do some real reporting, and she started she's, doing... She's brilliant. She's, I mean, she did one story... Where she went and spent time with a woman who was living on food stamps, and it was such a powerful piece of writing that um, we had to set up a 501c3 for the money that came in to wow. buy this woman a tele. She didn't have a telephone. She didn't have a refrigerator. And you know, Tony wrote this real piece about what it's like to have four kids and no refrigerator and have to live on food stamps. That sounds like something we should uh, probably be getting America to read yet again. Uh, and every year as they and, cut and every more and year, more. Yes. Yeah. So you write about Jonathan Gold that he was slightly pompous, irritating, 
and utterly fascinating, which I think is is a perfect <laughs> writing of him. But he was such a beautiful and, and amazing writer. Um, so you brought him into the fold at Gourmet. Well, when I was asked to be the editor of Gourmet, I basically said, I will do this if I can bring Laurie and Jonathan. I mm-hmm. want Laurie to be my executive editor. I need her editing skills, and I want Jonathan to have a national platform. Um, you know, he he's the best restaurant critic I know, and we need someone really great for Gourmet. So they moved to New York, and I, I dedicated the book to them. And actually, when I first wrote the dedication, Jonathan was still alive. Oh. Um, and it just breaks my heart that he passed away so young. It's an enormous loss. It is an enormous loss because uh, he was one of the most astute critics. But but in the modern world of restaurant criticism, he was reviewing restaurants that weren't getting any critical acclaim. Uh, they were neighborhood haunts and uh, quote-unquote ethnic restaurants that did, were, were, were not worthy of a lot of restaurant reviewers' times. And yet he dedicated his life to showing those places that you could have an amazing meal in those places. Well, and, and we and all... And we all believed, and that was one of the things that we were trying to do with the L.A. Times food section, that um, one of the things that you can do with food is introduce a community to each other. That um, in those days, one of the things that made um, the neighborhood restaurants of Los Angeles so incredibly good was that you could be a Thai person. Actually, Tommy Tang, a a Thai chef, once said to me, you know, I could have spent my entire life in the Thai community never learning English. And they were so far flung that they were really... So the Korean restaurants were cooking for Koreans and the Chinese restaurants were cooking Mm -hmm. for, you know, for regional Chinese food. And the Salvadoran restaurants, they didn't care if anybody else came. And we all felt that it was really important for people to get to know their neighbors and that one thing we could do was say, you really do want to go, you know, discover uh, the Korean restaurants. I mean, they're they're fantastic. And you want to go eat arepas and tacos and all these foods. But that's such a beautiful idea in in espousing what a community is really meant to be. A community is meant to be disparate groupings of people who uh, have a sort of tacit agreement to live together in peace. And and not fully understand each other, but but get along. And I think we get along through food, and I think you and Jonathan both really advanced that notion. Well, I mean, we, we felt it really strongly that, I mean, especially in a newspaper, that one of the best ways to cover a city is through food. And then especially if you expand your notion of what food is. So it is, you know, people living on food stamps and, you know, it is new advances in science. And, you know, we did have somebody who was reporting from the grape fields because um, wine is an important part of California agriculture. And, you know, what happened on the farms really mattered to the rest of us. And, um, so we really tried very hard to expand the food section beyond what... Beyond, beyond the fine dining and the uh, how to cook your turkey? Yes. Uh, well, it definitely worked because it's still an iconic uh, food publication despite different ownership and everything like that. But they, uh, it's 
really still known for food. I guess Bill Addison is Bill Addison there now. Bill Bill Addison is there now, and Peter Meehan is about to Peter Meehan's, um, yeah. launch the new L.A. Times food section. I think this month. Wow, that's uh, yeah. a, a lot of very beautiful, bright people. Uh, let's eat some food. Okay. Corey, you're feeding us. What are you feeding us? All right. So here we have a spring salad. It is made of watercress, frisée, auric, strawberries that are compressed with a little bit of salt, sugar, and lemon juice, parsley, and pistachios, and it's dressed all in a shallot vinaigrette. We have a boiled peanut hummus with root bakings sourdough. So root baking is this amazing bakery run by our friend Chris Wilkins in that same shopping center you maybe went to last time called Ponce City Market. Right. He opened up a bakery there recently. It's an amazing bakery. He was on the long list for beard awards. And then we have confit derby chicken legs. Uh, these are confit and chicken fat seasoned with a little bit of bay leaves and rosemary. Um, and then it's getting a pea salad that is going to be dressed in a pea stew made from basil, parsley, and tarragon. It's going to have roasted carrots and shaved carrots that are coming from Woodland Gardens, and it's topped with some pea shoots. Wow. Thanks, Beautiful. Corey. So it, it's, it's funny in the world of food and the world of what we look at um, and the names that pop up. But this is Darby, which is a local chicken farm. But then Woodland Gardens is really intriguing because that's a small organic farm owned by two guys who don't live in Athens, but that's where the farm is. Um, but the head gardener was a guy named Tucker Taylor. Does that name ring a bell? No. Tucker's now the head gardener at Kendall Jackson Estates. But oh my he's, God. he's one of the most amazing oh, they farmers. They have so much money. Uh, yeah, they have a ton of money. Um, and then boiled peanut hummus. Um, and then salad. So dig in. Here, you have a side plate. I do. There's a roll up. And we're still going to talk. Okay. Um, I think that. Uh, so, so you came on board with Gourmet in what, 1998? Is that what you said? 99. And then when did Gourmet close its doors? 2009. So I was there. So it was a decade. Yeah. And towards the end, you hired uh, the person who is actually my editor now, who is the uh, wonderful Francis Lamb. Um, you know, the Francis story is kind of great because I was at one of those CIA. Um, you know, Greystone con con conferences? Greystone conferences. World on of Flavors. World of Flavor, yes. World of Flavors. And Francis came up to me with a manila envelope and said, would you read this? Was and, it the dossier? And it, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a story he had written, and it was really good. He's, he's a wonderful writer. He's and a then wonderful writer. I looked at his resume, and it turns out he's got an MFA in... Uh, writing, and he graduated from the CIA. And I called up Doc uh, Willoughby, who was then the executive editor, and I said, this guy is great. We've got to get him on an exclusive contract. I mean, I don't want him writing for anyone else. I want him, to, I mean, we just want to send him out in the world and say, write whatever you want. It, it's, a, it's a perspective I haven't seen before. Um, Francis tells that story a little differently. He says that he was so awkward that he was standing in front of me going, uh, 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 which I don't remember at all. 
Um, I can see both sides of it. Francis is uh, brilliant, but he's, like me, he's a little socially awkward. So, yeah, it's how how I think about ourselves. Um, I don't think either of you is the least bit socially awkward. Maybe it's just how we view ourselves inside. I remember meeting Francis for the first time at a Southern Foodways Alliance symposium in Oxford, Mississippi. And he was wearing a shirt and a black sweater. And at first I thought he was a priest. (laughs) (laughs) Which years later I was like, weren't you wearing like a priest outfit? And he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Hugh. He is is very fashionable, Francis. He is very fashionable. So it may have been just fashion priest look. But so, okay, since so food changed inordinately in the decade that you were in at Gourmet, and a lot of that change is due to uh, your editorial bent and the the way you uh, the way the world saw food through the prism of Gourmet magazine. Um, But then it changed a lot after Gourmet. So what do you you think is the most noticeable change in how Americans view food and cooking since the demise of gourmet? I I think it's really generational. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think the thing that has happened is, and it was starting to happen with gourmet, but it has really happened now that we have a generation of young people who are the most interesting ethical eaters that this country has ever raised. And, you know, part of it is social media, um, everything is known now. You know, things that people didn't know before, now they know in an instant. And food trends happen so fast. Yeah, and transparency mm. and, and all and, that. You know, and people are, and this generation really understand in a way that certainly, you know, nobody in previous generations really got how powerful our food choices are and how important they are. And they're really out to change the world. Yeah, the I food. mean, historically, I think that um, a lot of generations past were very bright about food and were very well written. You, I, it wrote about food really well. You write a lot about MFK Fisher as her friend in the book. Um, but now I'm thinking just, which is not meant to... Um, put disdain on the past generations, but this current generation just does a deep dive into knowledge that's so much more in depth. Um, but that maybe that's just because the resources are, uh, available to them are just so much more abundant on where they can learn from. Well, it's also, I mean, I, I think you really have to look at the biggest change in American food came with the beginning of the TV Food Network. I mean, 93, right. suddenly there's food TV. And one of the things that's really happened is how good it's become. You know, it was really stupid. For I mean, all food t- TV was kind of ridiculous, you know, um, ridiculous cooking contests. And now you've got, you know, the chef's table era of, you know, beautiful, thoughtful, really seductive food television. And yeah. I think that's been a huge change. So... I mean, is that, do you think that food television is the reason we have great restaurants in Minneapolis? Which is not to say that there weren't great restaurants before in Minneapolis, but I mean like really stellar restaurants. And and Minneapolis is just an example because we have them in every size, small size city in the States now. I, th- I think that's one huge reason. And I think, you know, I mean, the other thing you, you've got, I mean, two really serious game changers that have had their biggest influence since Gourmet closed, Michael Pollan Mm -hmm. and Tony Bourdain. Yeah. um, Who 
both of them really influenced um, enormously how Americans think about food, and especially how young Americans think about food. And, you know, Tony really brought the world home and was incredibly thoughtful about what food can be and very ambitious for even in his juvenile stage which i, I think was a, a lot of his early writing was was just the bad boy of of food and and on television as well but he morphed into such a caring person an empathetic person about the food world and about communities you know, but I just I noticed when I say juvenile, I mean like the acid trip type of flashback of his like shows and in the beginning morphed into this really. And I, I mean, the Beirut episode, I remember that. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Which was, seemed to be a critical episode for really changing the way it, the prism they looked through when he looked at food in the communities that he was visiting. Like the, the, this is a harrowing experience and would have forever changed the way they looked at that ZPC Productions looked at every episode. Mostly well, you know, in ZPC, they were my producers, too. I, I did three television shows with them. Um, and, and actually, there you look at ZPC, I mean, what a change. When I first worked with them, the only people they were working with were me and Tony at that mm -hmm. point. And it was just Chris and Lydia and, yeah. and one other cameraman. And now, you know, they're enormous. And they're wonderfully thoughtful, lovely people. Um, I think brilliance attracts brilliance uh, in a lot of ways, and I think Anthony was so brilliant that just you know that whole production company was just filled with people who were just amazing. But they were absolutely all ready to you know after the Beirut thing, they were all ready to you know really take it to this other a place. new level. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is so interesting. I mean, what we've learned about food in the last forty years. I mean, it's like we knew virtually nothing before, but we just know so much now. And we to, still have so much more to, to learn. More to learn because, yeah, food, food in, in my mind is, is great for my disposition because it's a never-ending topic. You can learn about it every day. And speaking of it, I want to know about these strawberries. They are amazing. Yeah, they're local strawberries. The strawberries are the first berry season here, and they come in really early here. Um, so we've compressed them. So um, I wish people could see them because they're glowing They are red. glowing. They're, and they're sort of going, eat me, eat me, eat me. And a bunch of ochre and, yeah, beautiful this stuff. salad is really, it's lovely. We like simple food. Yeah, which is funny. The, the, the arc of food these days is getting simplicity. When I say simple food, I just mean it's easy. Yeah, I was going to say, this is the most complicated salad. But <laughs> simple food is coming back, uh, which I love. Um, you know, I look at other aspirational chefs, like people I aspire to and, and give me inspiration to look at and, who are mentors and whatnot, the Brenny Redzepis and the Grand Ockets and things like that. But I don't cook it all in that way. I cook in a very way that's homely to me and comforting. Well, you know, as a restaurant critic, you, your tastes get simpler and simpler and simpler. You know, like the more people throw these sous vide 28-hour eggs you, you just yeah. want to go home and, you know, throw an egg into yeah, a pan and, you know, yeah, fry, fry it. Fry it. <laughs> yeah, put some good salt and pepper on it on toast. Yes. Yeah, it's it's not recreating the wheel. Um, that That's awesome. So tonight you were talking with my dear friend and the amazing writer Kim Severson, and you're going to talk about the book, but you're on a crazy media blitz tour. Does this type of thing get exhausting? 
No, you know, you get a lot of energy. From, you do. I mean, it's it's exhausting to get up at five o'clock every morning and you know fight your way to the tra- to the airport and go through security and get on a little plane and be in four four inches of space. But then you get off and you know you you meet people like come and talk to you and I kind of love it. You kind of love it. We were talking initially at the very beginning about air travel and how things changed when Americans were able to travel um, on it. I mean, that, that uh, probably every good change in food, mm-hmm. and there have been a lot of bad ones, but every good change of food, I think, starts with affordable air travel. I mean, it really starts. In it's this- funny, a lot of the technology tied to good food comes from airlines, too. I mean, sous vide and all that sort of stuff that we use in kitchens was all developed with- at one point in time with uh, Air France and Andre Soltner and people like that doing doing a lot of research and development on it. So. Well, that's... That's really interesting. I, I was in uh, I was in Newfoundland uh, recently, and I flew in, flew to Gander. Oh my god! Which is that amazingly weird, um, but know, wonderful. You know, I am old enough so that to when realize when planes had to stop. Again. We stopped. You you stopped in Gander, and then in Shannon, Ireland. I mean, they couldn't yeah. make it across. The they ocean couldn't get without... across the pond with one thing of gas, right. so they'd stop. So Gander, this town of five thousand people, which there's now a musical about uh, the planes all. Landing there after 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. But it used to be that, you know, the Sultan of Brunei would be in a room with Frank Sinatra in the middle of the Gander Airport having a, you know, a martini <laughs> or something like that. But the golden age of travel. But because now we can travel anywhere, because airline prices are much more achievable for regular Americans uh, of, me, of, of relatively low means, that we can go to Burgundy and we yep. can taste snails and we can learn and round out our wants but there's the other side of it too and the other side of it i mean that's the one thing is we all went and we all go and taste you know thai food and you travel like crazy but the other thing is immigration Mm -hmm. you know until cheap air travel people would come here and think they were here for the rest of their lives and they didn't go home and so they wanted to become americans so people didn't hang on to their food ways and being able to go home means that people bring back and they, each trip. They bring back from each trip, and they're proud of their ties. You know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they know that they're they're going to keep be, being able to touch their families who are in this other place, and that's changed the way food, the food that they bring us, is. So, I mean, air travel is really yeah. a huge. And maybe it, it's really been the reason for globalism and food. You know, why do we? Why, why, why is kombucha and um, kefir and kimchi all that begin with K? That was weird. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be alliterative. Um, why are those all known quantities by most of Iowa City? Well, and, and, and that's, that is really why. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, if you wanted to eat authentic Mexican food in New York City, you were out of luck. I mean, I could have wanted it all. I, it, it just wasn't there. And even the ability to recreate it wasn't really there. I mean, when you look at Gourmet's original recipes for Chinese food, when Nina Simons was doing, she did a fabulous two-year something every month on regional Chinese cooking, and they're wonderful, but, you know, you couldn't get any of the ingredients here. Um, You know, there was no Shaoxing wine. You just, there was no way to get it. So, um, you know, down the road, we had to like change all those recipes and say, no, now you re- you can get 
freshwater chestnuts. I mean, I don't think there was a freshwater chestnut in the entire United States. No. Yeah, I mean, looking through even Sunset magazines in the 1970s doing oriental food (laughs) recipes and things like that were just hilarious. Uh, But we've learned so much about food, and I think... uh, But, you know, I think Americans learn to cook in a large regard, too. I'm trying to think of... I've never been able to... Like, chefs learn to cook vegetables somehow, right? And that that ebb down to regular households through magazines. But it wasn't only that they learned to cook vegetables... They, they encouraged farmers to grow vegetables for them, and, and that was enormous. I mean, you had Alice Waters going out. You know, she had everyone in, in Berkeley pull up their lawns to plant mesclin. It didn't exist in this country. Right. Um, you know, arugula, which then they called rocket. I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I tasted arugula. It was like, whoa, what is this delicious I remember thanking Emeril Lagasse for talking about Aruba and Rocket on TV prior to me opening up my first restaurant because it made it a lot easier now since Georgia. Somebody knew about it then. Right. You know, because of that dissemination of information. But, I mean, so it starts with chefs basically asking farmers, um, and, you know, Chef's Garden, uh, Mm -hmm. Charlie Trotter went to Farmer Lee Jones and said, you know, raise me, here, here are 15 things I want raised organically. So, so it wasn't just that chefs taught people how to cook them. First, they taught people that they existed. Right. And then it was like, okay, if I can get this in a restaurant, maybe I can get it from the farm. Right. And the farmer's market movement has been huge. I mean, and it was... Yeah, but we always say that, but there's still less farmer's markets than there were like 40 years ago when we bought our food in an entirely different way. And, you know, my worry is that the farmer market movement is, is really placating of the upper echelon. But, I mean, there are definitely counter arguments that say, you know, Wholesome Wave has made it possible for people on food stamps to shop at farmer's markets and doubles the value of the dollar. But there's still some sort of a, mm, a fancifying of it. There is, but the I mean, me. the truth is that every revolution starts with the middle classes, right? And that, and the food revolution does too. And I mean, the reality is that you know, even 15 years ago, you could not go to a supermarket and get organic. If you wanted organic food, you had to go to a specialty store. And now, it doesn't matter where in America you are, there is a section that has organic food. And, you know, that is not for the people who are shopping at farmer's markets. It's for everyone. And certainly we have to deal with food deserts and all of that. But um, it is trickling down in a really good way. And, you know, you do have things like, you know, healthy fast food, you know, the sweet green. You know, you, you couldn't get a good salad and quickly um, 10 years ago. Right. And right. now you can. And no, it's it's definitely changing. So, back to gourmet. When, what what's the first recipe? What's the first proud recipe that comes to mind? Not the best. Everybody always asks me like things like, "What's your favorite this?" and "What's your best that?" Just one that comes to mind that you're immensely proud of during your tenure of gourmet. Okay, I'm not going to give you a recipe answer because the first thing that come came to mind was. In my second issue, um, 
I asked Michael Willman to do a profile of Thomas Keller. And um, he did this fantastic profile, but it totally terrified me because there was a moment in it where Keller says that he realized that if he was going to cook meat, he, he felt like he needed to kill the animals himself. And there's this group, he asks his purveyor to bring him live rabbits. And there is the most horrific scene of him killing these rabbits. And the rabbit tries to escape, and it, he, he grabs it by the leg, and the leg snaps. And it's just, it is graphic and horrible. And he then says, after you know this bloodbath behind the restaurant, he decided that if he was going to cook these rabbits, they were going to leave the best rabbits anybody ever ate because he had realized in this horror that he had created that food was life itself. And, you know, this I'm brand new to this job, and my publisher looks at this story and says, there's no way you can... I mean, gourmet readers are going to be horrified by this. And I said, but... This is really you important. Got to, it's this good. Is, this is his. This is his aha moment as a chef. <laughs> this is his defining moment as a chef. I mean, at that point, Keller was, you know, considered probably the finest chef in America, and this is what made him a chef. And this is was this before Ruhlman had written the French Laundry Cookbook? He was. Didn't he, he, write he, it? he was. He did, yeah. and he was writing it. And that's why I asked okay. him to do it because he yeah. knew. Keller so intimately, he'd lived in his house. And I mean, he, he, and um, so my publisher and I had this huge argument about whether we could publish this or not. And eventually we did. And, you know, she said, everybody's going to cancel their subscriptions to Gourmet. And I said, no, this is like, you know, this is what cooking is it about. Is. And um, so for me, that rabbit was the moment when I really got what I was doing as an editor at Gourmet. I can understand the apprehensiveness of the publisher, though. I remember having to do a cooking demo one time with uh, John and Suki Jamison. Uh-huh. Uh, I know them well. Lamb and, uh, they just wrote a beautiful book uh, that they just sent me. But um, And uh, Suki wanted to kill a lamb and butcher it on stage. Oh, and I was like, I don't think that's probably what Charleston Wine and Food wants. I, I don't think they're ready. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, we talked about that one. But um, yeah, America's not ready sometimes. America's not ready, but I mean... You, know, you got to push the boundaries, though. I mean, I think that would still be a really tough one. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say, you know, the notion that you couldn't write this scene... Now seems ridiculous. I know, and, and I haven't read so that, so now I have to go and find it. It so. was, it was, it's the one with the Nazi youth on the cover. Oh yeah, the, the restaurant <laughs> the re- issue. Yeah, with it the was the first cover. restaurant issue, yeah. but it's a really good piece. Yeah, and my, you know, Michael, what a wonderful writer he is. Yeah, well, you paved the way for so many, so many writers. Uh, you've got a legacy behind you, and the book is amazing. So, Ruth Reichel, have fun in Atlanta. Uh, I plan to, and I have to tell you. I mean, this this peanut. Do you call this hummus? Yeah, I mean, of a sort. It's it's <laughs> one of the most delicious things. I, I mean, why do we not get more savory peanut dishes? I know, but green peanuts are difficult. They're yeah. very seasonal. They have their one iterance in in the in the serves in the summer and early fall. Um, 
The peanuts are so, and you can't find the north. I mean, I, I catch people in New York making boiled peanuts out of like roasted peanuts. You can't do that. They have to be green peanuts before drying and everything. Okay, so, so this is this is truly local food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I don't try this at home, right? Yeah, <laughs> you can. I'll send you some green peanuts uh, in season. This this is this is spectacular. Well, good. Um, well, that's what food yeah. should be: simple and spectacular. Ruth, have a good time. The book's awesome. Oh, it's just been really fun. Thank you. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location in the dining room of Empire State South in Midtown Atlanta. Scott Porch produces the show, and Mackenzie Mazell edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review and come back Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me at Twitter or on Instagram at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Be swell.